Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about the deep principles we hold dear, the state of our public conversations and how we can build better relationships with people different from ourselves. In this episode, I speak to Sanderson Jones, who is a comedian, a social entrepreneur and co-founder and creative director of the Sunday Assembly. If you've not come across it, the Sunday Assembly is a worldwide movement of secular congregations, sometimes known as the Atheist Church. We discussed his early experiences with religion, the impact of losing his mum as a child, his sacred value of life, and why he feels we all need more meaning and belonging. I hope you enjoy listening. Sanderson, I'd like you to try and tell me about your sacred values, by which I don't mean anything necessarily religious, but deep principles that have um, been a thread through your life, perhaps, and that when they are compromised or challenged, you feel that quite strong, instinctive, negative reaction to that. Do you know what yours might be? The American flag. Beautiful. Uh, If I ever see it being trampled upon, burn, or anything done to really go and uh, contravene its principles, then it's straight away. SWAT team, rescue that flag. (laughs) Rescue the flag, preemptive war. Exactly. Uh, Other than that, uh, it would be... Uh, sacred is such a good question. By the way, great idea for a podcast. Uh, the so life is my sacred value, and I admittedly that's slightly been colonized by pro life, uh, not in that sense, uh, but just to go and tune in and to go and realize how transcendentally gifted we are with just being an alive human. The ability to exist. There will be a time when I am dead and I will be nothing. Uh, and if I could just have that one glimpse back to this very moment right now, it would be an orgy of the senses. You know, the opportunities that are afforded to us as living, walking, bipedal little men and women or not men and women, it's just beyond belief. And so. That's the thing that I try to tap into, and that's the feeling that I that guides me, and it is sort of both guides something in my life, but also uh, morality as well, uh, which I attempt to live up to. But you know, in, in your own life, then that's yeah, really trying to live it as much as possible to try to uh, honor the fact that you have this gift, and and I know that. It's quite funny because at some stage you're going to explain sort of what I do or what have you. Uh, yeah, I'm always, I feel, I know when I'm, when I'm far from life, <laughs> which is quite interesting when you go and read all these people going, oh, I, was, I felt far from my God. And you're like, I've got that, that. I have that same feeling when I'm not sort of being, when I'm not connecting to it and I'm not living it out, then there is a, uh, yeah, sort of emotion. Uh, I was going to say a presence, but again, this language is so, uh, it's got such religious connotations. It's uh, its odd to use it if you're an uh, atheist. Uh, but yeah, really, uh, it guides what I do. And I know when I'm close to it and I know when I'm far away from it. Um, it also guides the work that I do of wanting to try to help other people also uh, live there. Uh, live their lives and uh, you know after you follow that down the line it said oh gosh it's it's also trying to help make the world which enables people to do that so uh, yeah that's my sacred value the American flag thing is funny but also shows that you really do actually understand the question because I think one of the reasons some people do feel so strongly about 
nation as sacred and flags as symbols of the sacred um, is for that exact reason, that there's something about the embodiment of a principle, of a community, of a sense of belonging, of something that should be inviolable and in that moment isn't. That, that, that would be, not necessarily the flag itself, but a nation is, for many people in the world, a real sacred value. So life, that you've expressed that beautifully, but it is massive. So for the listeners who that isn't their sacred value or they don't know exactly what, they, what you mean, uh, cash out for it maybe. So what does that mean in terms of morality? What are the kind of things that you would feel that like gut disgust feeling because of your sacred value? Or, you know, the opposite, the positive. So on the positive side of things, then uh, I suppose, well, I'll start at the peak and maybe work uh, backwards. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Uh, I am going to probably actually start, talk about this of how it came about. Mm. And that is uh, that my mum died when I was very young. And uh, already before that, I'd started to have uh, doubts about God and was pretty much sort of uh, uh, out of it. Um, out of out of what? Out of God. Uh, what, the, where was what was God? Where why were you in it at all? How did that? Happen? Oh, so uh, I was brought up in a Christian household. Uh, loved the Bible. Uh, winner of the Hearst Scripture Prize numerous times. Wow. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, even I can remember I've got a really fond memory of uh, helping out at Sunday school. Uh, with my mum when I must have been eight or nine and sort of teaching really little people how to uh, draw. Uh, how, who was it? Uh, oh my Noah God. or Moses. No, no, or... no. It was Jacob and his steps, uh, which I think is right. Yeah. Okay, a few. So that her scripture prize, those heady days is quite some Served time you ago. Well. Uh, and so, but then the thing, which I, what I loved alongside that is I was a huge myth, uh, like huge lover of myths, Greek myths, uh, Roman myths, you know, all of the myths. And I think it was also brought on by Mr. Giles, a science teacher who was the first atheist I met. Uh-oh. And he... Cool and mysterious. Uh, and, and he sort of raised like, oh, so why is, why is that? Why are they myths? <laughs> and... Also, that I would when when I when studying religious uh, scripture back scripture back then and scripture in my day, uh, the uh, was you know learning about Hinduism and Buddhism and being like, oh, how come how come these myths that I'm reading about as myths are in fact religions, and how come but not true religions, but this one religion that I'm learning about is is different, and you know all of those processes started. So uh, I'd already started to check out uh, the. Obviously, my mum dying uh, sort of influenced me for a while. I was like, I'm going to believe in heaven for a little bit longer. Uh, so uh, I did for a bit, but, you know, pretty half-heartedly. And but I think what it gave me was, and it took a long time to come to this, of just this realisation of how precious life is and, and having to really grapple with that. It's not, it didn't happen instantly. And, and also getting that at a really embodied level because. You're not learning about it academically. It's something which is running through your uh, through your veins. It is, you know, it's just it's such a deep feeling. And so, you know, all of these ideas got that heightened emotion, which really goes and turns sort of, you know, maybe philosophy into spirituality. And I remember as a teenager, just even thinking, this is such a sort of overly dramatic teenage thought, but, you know, just being really sort of aware of the blood pumping through my veins as this symbol that I was alive and that becoming, you know, just like almost overwhelming experience. And so 
that's where this idea of, you know, life uh, came from, but life as something which is sacred. And it's the more I learn about embodied cognition and sort of somatic markers and all that Damasio stuff, then... Sorry, jargon alert. Uh, the first one I understood, but the second one, the second two not, and there will be listeners who don't understand any of those. Sorry, so briefly sorry. As you can. No, no, no. I've become awful, uh, and uh, because I've sort of read over two books and whilst doing this stuff, <laughs> uh, and so uh, embodied cognition is the idea that so much of your thinking doesn't get done uh, in your only in your head. It's totally informed by your body. So you have a gut response to something, and then. But if you go actually in the sacred, it's really important because when you see that flag being burnt, you're you're not just thinking it. You're like, oh, your whole body's coming in. You're when you see your child, you're like, oh, it's, it's happening in your body. And so, what happens? So that feeling that I had as a teenager, I really had a hard time explaining it. But it was because the value of life became sort of, uh, and the ideas around it became sort of coded into my body. And uh, that is this idea called somatic markers. And so this idea that your values are in fact marked into you, into your soma, into your body. And so that is, you know, that's like, and, and the guy who's behind that is a guy called uh, Antonio Damasio. I might have put an extra EO on his name, either Anthony or Antonio, either way. And, he won't be offended. Uh, he won't be. Old, old Damasi. Uh, and yeah, and so then that sort of went, okay, that's why this this thought was something to which to me like to other people that I like, can go and oh yeah celebrate life sure to me it's like oh no I mean something serious life yeah. and uh, and so that's the same thing like one person's going to see the word Jesus oh Jesus and other people are like like Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior one person is going to be like oh God, God and then I start crying I go and and so it just means it like the words have got totally different meanings well thank you uh, and it's I think it really helps us build empathy to hear what people mean behind the words they use because of the the differences in the associations that we have with them. But also I think that you can't, like the words themselves aren't going to get there because it is, because it's a feeling. And and so much of this is like, until we've got these, not just ways of communicating ideas, that's feeling feelings associated with them. That's what really moves people. Um, there's so much in that that obviously makes loads of sense with what you're doing now, but I want to keep that thread a little yeah, bit of your story. It. So um, tell me about, you had a brief sojourn in advertising that then became comedy. What, what were the threads you were following there? Yes. So when I went into, uh, so I left university and, you know, I'm going to pick up another thread there. And so whilst at school, you know, I, you know, when I was a kid, loved reading and there was, you know, sort of, and I, I'm only going to bring this up because it's relevant later on, but it's going to involve me saying that people thought I was intelligent, but that's only uh, important because then I disappointed a lot of people and myself. And so that's the weird thing when you're like, oh God, I really like, and I want to learn and I want to do well and I want to go and, uh, you know, go and make these things happen. And everyone around me, when speaking to them, they're like, oh God, you should be able to do that. Oh, you've got lots of, you've got all these things. Uh, and but then there would be this gap between what I wanted to do and then sometimes the results which happened in my life. For instance, I was the uh, captain of the second team at Bristol 
And I'm team not, of what? Uh, rugby. Right. Of rugby. Uh, There's every, only one team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else grew out sideways, and I had only grown up. So, uh, so like, I wasn't able to sort of like hang out with the big boys. But anyway, so there I am. That's like one sign of that you are capable at the thing. The team got uh, relegated despite being like one of the best in the league because somehow people got me to organize. And I said, the one thing I don't want to do is any organization. And that's, and then the end team ended up being relegated because on a few games, people had said, can you do this? And I was like, oh, that's not my job. And uh, we weren't able to get a team out. So there we go. And I use that as a thing. And so in my life, that was a one other thing of like trying to answer this question of how on earth do I do the things that I want to do? Uh, I was... Then when I left university, what I did you study? Studied history. Okay. Uh, did my dissertation on Meister Eckhart. Lovely. So love him. Uh, and so then I. So anyway, that's just one other thread there. And so when I left university, there's a, there's a bit of a like you know loss of structure where some of these sort of issues like I was having to work out how to get over them. Uh, I and then in the course of that, I really got into Web 2.0. This is a while back. This is in the early 2000s. And so I was looking into that and I was like, I can't, I'm not a techie, but I was like, what is really advertising seems to be a huge model behind this. If I learn how to sell, then that will be a useful thing. So I went into The Economist, was uh, doing advertising there, worked on a digital innovation team for them. But the other thing which I really wanted to do was to become a stand-up. And this is where you've only got one life. You might as well do the thing that you want to do, uh, came in. And so I was, I was thinking I'll either do a startup or uh, become a stand-up. I ended up becoming a stand-up. My first show was called Another Heartbreaking but Ultimately Life-Affirming Show About Death. Uh, basically me trying to work out on stage why on earth I felt about life, like trying to communicate that, but without the words or the ideas or any of the concepts to really do it justice. Uh, and also I wasn't that good at stand-up. So, uh, but then in, it was in 2011, I came up with a show, which again, sort of pulled these threads back together. And it was a show where I sold all the tickets by hand. And that way I met everyone, but it also had this digital side of it where I would then research the audience and incorporate their social media into the show. And so there's this sort of like philosophical side of it of trying to make shows which are important and like, you know, go and communicate ideas, this sort of entrepreneurial side, and also this sort of technological side, which has all like been of huge interest for the almost the past 20 years. And, uh, and that's what I was doing. Uh, but then about 10 years ago, or I don't, I don't know when I started saying 10 years ago, so probably a bit longer than that now, I left a church carol service in, uh, where was it? It was in Bowdenkirk, the uh, church where I was christened, where my mum was buried. And I left it and I thought, there's so much about this that I love. I of the community, the singing, thinking about improving yourself. And also there's something that for me, and I think I've only realized, I actually loved the idea of there being churches and the architecture of churches. And I thought it's such a shame that there isn't something like this, which I could come to and which everyone could come to. So that was a little seed that was planted and uh, ended up sort of really changing sort of what I do. And that seed was planted. What was the soil in which it grew? What was the water? So, you know, I was at the time, I was trying to become a stand-up and you know, that's a full-time thing to go and uh, do that. And, and a bit brutal, right? Uh, and a bit brutal. And particularly when, uh, and this is sort of like a bit of foreshadowing, when you have undiagnosed ADD, 
uh, which I only got diagnosed with last year. So there's like still that thing of that, the show, which was my um, breakout show in 2011. It's the one which got me an agent, which enabled me to go sort of professional, um, was really about that, about like how do like, I, I, I the line, how do I do what I want to do? Intriguingly, a line that St. Paul like uses, isn't it? I remember reading that. I was like, oh, mate, <laughs> maybe I can get something done after all. Uh, and so the, yeah, so that was, uh, and, and as I was thinking about that show, and it was a show where I sold all the tickets by hand, my idea came, well, look, what I could do if it, when this show works, I could just go from town to town, sell tickets. Uh, which they, you already knew how to do. Which I knew how to do. And so I'd go and do that. And then, but what I'd actually be doing is building up communities where I could go for the rest of my life. I'd have met these people. And then, you know, there's this th- like 10,000 fans. You only need 10,000 pounds fans to give you 10 pounds a year, et cetera. I was like, that's the sort of thing I was thinking about. I was like, let's go meet them. Uh, the, so, and then I was like, well, if I've got these different groups of people in different towns, then I could sort of do congregations. So that's the, that was the sort of journey where I started to think, okay, this is how I can sort of layer it on top of the work that I'm already doing. And uh, so that's, that got that going in my mind. So when I was doing the show and I went to Australia to do it, there was, that's what I was thinking of. Like, okay, I'm going to go in these places and then they're going to be the sort of uh, kernels around which we can grow congregations. And you launched the Sunday Assembly and asked, uh, the listener will already have heard a bit about it and um, its size and uh, its uh, trajectory, which has been a bit bonkers and exciting. Uh, what was the initial reaction like when you launched, both amongst, I guess, the established churches, but also amongst other atheist groups or non-religious communities? Yeah, I've got. Uh, there, there was certainly not a lot of people in the atheist community who were not fans. Uh, there's uh, there's a line I no longer use in my stand up, but there was. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, atheists out there, who think that the way that I don't believe in God is not the right way to not believe in God. And it just really upset people. And again, they, they, because the format was so associated with something, going back to the sacred, which they thought violated their sacred values. And having gone to the US and heard stories of what's happened to people in churches and like some of the spiritual abuse or like uh, how they've been made to feel. You're like, yeah, I would feel pretty strongly about that as well. And so, yeah, whereas I didn't really have that association with it, I just thought, you know, you're not against singing talks or mindfulness. What, what, what changes when you go and put them in a certain order? So that was quite interesting. There was, um, and then in religious groups, I think because Pippa and I, I mean, you've always got the certain people who are like, Oh, it's the devil. It's like, oh, they sound very reasonable. But what would the devil sound like? That was genuinely written somewhere. I was like, yeah. Because we would, when we were interviewed, there's one thing, there's The Blaze, which is Glenn Beck's paper, I think. Um, there's some quote where I said, um, we love churches. We think religion's great. Which we do and did. So it really goes and it's quite hard to get upset about with two people like that. Yeah. Uh, it does sound like a, a helpful guide. It was funny as I was reading it, past interviews with you um, and some of the coverage around the Sunday Assembly, it was remarkable how much more the non-religious were upset to the point that I almost felt like, 
churches, there should at least be not not necessarily an upset reaction, but certainly some attention paid to this mm. phenomenon. Talk to me about leadership because you have you started as a stand up. It's really interesting that you initially thought you might start a startup. You've talked about that entrepreneurial thread, but one of the things this podcast is interested in is leaders in public life and how they engage across difference, but also just how you lead well because that builds healthy communities. How have you dealt with what in religious terms we talk about the temptations of power because of being a charismatic leader and a figurehead and people looking to you for things um, in terms of your character and I guess your sacred value of, of life and being true to that? Uh, I'm going to start talking about the things I'm bad at. Uh, and that is, well, it's, you know, I'm going to beat myself up about it, but in many ways having ADD and then a viral, uh, a community organization going viral is both the best thing. Oh, lots of stuff happening. But, but if the structures aren't placed around it to enable you to go and contribute in the right way, just becomes a factory of hurt. Because people meet you in person and they're like, oh my God, he's really, and I genuinely do. I like getting under like, and then, and then they'll email you and you're like, oh God, I'm re- receiving however many of these. And, and even if I wasn't receiving that many, it's also not my forte and I've got, and, and I hadn't really put systems around or all of these things. And so that's been, I think the things which I found hardest about leadership are ones which a lot of other people find uh, easier. Uh, not necessarily easy, but like uh, there's a lot of pressure which comes from it. But that's been the thing which I found hardest of just figuring out the right way to go and the right way to interact with people because actually community is a huge, is just logistics, Yeah, a lot of it. And uh, if there was a project planning job, I wouldn't apply. <laughs> uh, so that's one part which I found hard. And then, and then I suppose that's also in a low resource organization. Yeah, I always think of like when Richard Branson goes, I'm dyslexic and I get to do all this. It's like, I bet your PAs pick up everything. And so like all of these, when you go and hear about this neurodiversity, it, it doesn't have to hold people back, but they're just, the setups need to be different for it. So anyway, that is a more prosaic, I don't know. I no, it, it makes complete sense. Um, and I think a lot of CEOs who are that kind of entrepreneurial, people who want to start projects struggle with then how do you embed it and make it sustainable? I'm, I think I'm, I'm always interested in character and that's because I struggle with my own. But, mm. you know, you talked earlier about 10,000 fans. What, how do you, how do you conceive of what your role is both for the Sunday Assembly and more broadly as a public non-religious person talking about non-religious spirituality in these powerful ways because you don't have the kind of theology jargon ecclesiology the sense of what a church leader should be and you're not a CEO in that sense of wanting to run a company that's got a profit motive how do you what what mm. what are you Sanderson what, what? if that's not going to throw you into an existential <laughs> crisis the that, that my wife had to go and fill in a form and she's like what's what? your job <laughs> yeah and so I think there are uh, I would again. This is, goes into jargon, but but because there aren't good sort of um, good things that you can point to, like archetypes. So, uh, and even the archetypes you might point to aren't necessarily appropriate nowadays. So, like if it's like, oh, I want to be a bishop. Well, actually, do you? Like, do you want to sit at the top of something and point around and have everyone? No. And so the way I'm looking at my role is as a uh, field builder is a new term I heard. And so it's it's about building a field. And so 
if you go and think about it, it's like, what are, I'll use mindfulness as an example. So uh, if you can think about mindfulness, like what did John Kabat-Zinn do to enable mindfulness to exist as a concept, which people uh, have? And so there's a whole, it's also called network entrepreneurship uh, and you're building a field of practice. And so it's like, okay, how can I go and create a change in a system which enables, uh, you know, in my case, I've now sort of like, uh, you know, meaning a sort of meaning and belonging to become a, you know, a fundamental sort of value uh, within it. And within that, I'm trying to sort of sort it out. I think meaning and belonging, I think they necessarily entail embodied connection, but I think you sort of need to go and communicate that as well. So that's what I'm trying to do is to go and say, okay, what are the different components which need to be there? Uh, how can you go and think about what's the accreditation needed? What's the framework that a business could use to say, are we providing meaning and belonging to our employees? Are we providing it to our customers? Are we, con- are we as concerned about the infrastructure of meaning and belonging as we are concerned about the environment? You know, what does it... Uh, what does it look like at what legislation can go and be put in there? What uh, academic research does it need to be? What So it's actually like a lot of different things. Like what alliances do you have to build? And then how loosely do you hold those alliances? And so I've learned so much about my role. But then there's also a bit of a challenge in that when the thing that I do best is you know, some of the, and the thing which I love doing is, you know, just some of the older, uh, what you guys would call charismatic leadershiping, you know, of being able to go and create a feeling in a room and to go and communicate ideas in a way that changes the sort of possibility. And then that is, you know, then that's very much a, I can stand at the front of the room. Oh, okay. That's a bit oh, well, problematic standing in the front of the room, but it's important. You need that there. So it's like, how can you go and use that to allow other people to go and come forward? And so there's a sort of facilitation role there as well. How do you both hold your idea lightly, but also have a vision and ask people to step into a vision? So yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot of like I hope you hear that I think about this a lot, yeah. but it's also something where there there needs to be new archetypes around it. So you have led a what is essentially now um, an, a network of congregations, and I know the structures have been you know changing and developing yeah. as you've needed them over time. But you presumably, as any the church is not a stranger to, come up against. Conflict and division and disagreement no, internally. No, never. No no, 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 no. We all get on. It's yeah. religion that divides us. Brilliant. Of course, <laughs> we all know that. Um, sh- should you have encountered difference and disagreement, what have you learned that our listeners can uh, gain from? And we obviously learn by making mistakes too. But kind of- Yeah, I mean, it's when you bring, I'm just going to say any, to anyone who's listening to this, who's involved in a church and is worried that you're doing something wrong in your church or there's something specific about uh, like theology or dogma, or if we change this, it's like basically it's going to happen anyway. It's about, you know, we've, again, this is like really learning about what we would often, what we'd like to do and not necessarily the things that we did at the time. Uh, the, I was recently studying uh, about witchcraft and how witchcraft is in the Azande, uh, where witchcraft accusations happen the whole time. It's actually seen as a way of, allowing people to air grievances uh, because 
you can you can be a witch unconsciously. And so you could have, and everyone's got the potential to be a witch, pretty much. Uh, it's all about your mango. Uh, and so you can, if something happened in various processes, someone can say you're a witch, then you have to do, you're not going to get killed. But basically, you've had to have something out with someone. And it's not judgmental. Like afterwards, like it can, it happens quite often. I mean, it's probably pretty judgmental. Uh, the, uh, but I was thinking like, wouldn't it be like, what, wouldn't it be great to have like, uh, a a community airing of grievances ceremony, but to make it like fun, you know, to be like, by the way, when you do this, it drives me bonkers. But like realizing that that happens, but I think particularly Brits are like not very good at having that. You're going to sort of, uh, you know, speak behind someone's back over a coffee and a, a ironically nice biscuit. Uh, and yeah, so like, what does it look like to have some sort of thing where it's like, okay, guys, let's all face it. We're all annoying each other in little different ways. How can we go and diffuse this now and actually air it? So that was one thing that I was thinking about. In terms of ideas, I think one of the things which has been really great about Sunday Assembly is we have, but also a challenge, is how do you create a space which is non-political, but which believes in justice? and how do you, the church never has to worry about that, does it? Nah. No, not at all. Uh, the, and then how do you go and, uh, yeah, and how do you go and make sure that when people are talking, they're not, uh, you know, they're not, you know, upsetting other people. Like it's a, I remember being in a small group. I was like, and someone was um, sitting around being like, do you think there's, do you think any Tories come to Sunday Assembly? It's like, yeah, there's someone who's working for a Tory MP who's like, you know, to help organize this event. You know, there's, yeah, like there are people, but it's so, I think, and particularly around the sacred, that's where I think that there is a, there are issues in our politics around the sacred. And I think it comes up again, because we don't have a language for the sacred, we go and make things sacred, which might not be helpful if they are. And if we start to see so-and-so as contravening that well ooh, suddenly there's a range of options it's like well because the sacred is so important it's more important than you and let's face it people who violate the sacred aren't human and oh what happens then and so i think that's why it's really important for us to be more cognizant of the things that we make sacred and then how do you go and have create the the meta structures meta narratives which allow people to go and have you know, they're different sacreds without uh, without thinking that the other person is, uh, you know. Subhuman. Well, subhuman. Well, less subhumanists. Yeah. Yes. Um, final question, sadly, which is if there are things that you as a, an atheist would like atheists to do better when they're talking across differences of religion and non-religion, either more of or less of, and things that perhaps religious people do that you really like it when they do that or it drives you mad and you'd like them to stop. I think if there's atheists, I think it would be to really look at religion and to really understand it and to go and think about it. Like I've, you know, the more I know about embodied cognition, the more, you know, the more I understand prayer. I was listening and to ritual, a, right? Yeah. And, and, and ritual, but I was speaking to this vicar and he, he was saying he's let, he no longer does arrow prayers, which is a term I hadn't heard before. I was like, oh, great. I love that. Uh, and, uh, but he sort of sees it as a, a prayer as like trying to surf a wave and then he's going to 
And you go and tune into that. And when you're tuning into that, you go and get the answers to your questions. I'd be like, well, that's how I see what I do in my life. And so, you know, trying to get a more sophisticated understanding of it instead of saying, oh, well, if I, if I was God, I certainly wouldn't like uh, go and uh, help Elizabeth Oldfield and have too many other things on my plate. Or what does it say? Oh, come on, guys. There's like, there's so much to learn from it that I think really healthy engagement would be best. Uh, likewise, I think that uh, at this same event, uh, there was, you know, there were two people who were religious who said, yeah, I just don't see how, don't see how you could uh, really sort of cope without having something larger than yourself. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's like uh, well, there are many things which are larger than me, this room, this earth, this universe, trying to understand life. Like, if you think that, like, things, like, your idea of how you get the thing which is larger than yourself, sacred values, how you get uh, your morals, like, don't think that you can't get those through other means. And that if people aren't using your chosen sort of system of tools to do it, those tools still exist. Uh, and yeah. And then the last thing I'd say is that I actually think that the category of religion is not particularly helpful, uh, even though uh, they exist, uh, for sure. But like whenever, uh, so that the idea, I recently learned of the idea of something being polythetic. So that means that something, a category can have, things in a category can have many different qualities, but no, but not having any one of those qualities doesn't mean that you aren't in that category. And it's basically the only way that you can have Quakerism, Buddhism, Christianity. The only way is you just go, oh, well, they're not really divine by anything. And that's a way out of it. And I, I think about this like how, I don't know if you've ever had that conversation about what's the difference between a fruit and a vegetable. Yeah. And it's the same thing. It's like, guys, the only way that we're going to sort this out, religion, non-religion, is if like in the same way that... You know, they go, oh, well, we can talk about fruits and vegetables because we talk about plants, yeah. you know, and that means that like suddenly that's how the science, and so to actually think, you know, what are the, what's the over, like I've used, I don't know, I've used the word meta too many times already, uh, but, you know, what's that category which allows us to go and think about religions and worldviews is there's a whole theory around worldviews and to really engage with that because it's by doing that that people who aren't religious can learn all the best things that uh, religion contains. Sanderson, thank you so much for coming on The Sacred. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.
because it's by doing that that people who aren't religious can learn all the best things that uh, religion contains. Sanderson, thank you so much for coming on The Sacred. No worries. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.